This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Denial and deflection, President Trump continues to block transition efforts. China clamped down, Hong Kong lawmakers resign over new anti-dissent rules and single-minded spending. Alibaba's record online sales highlight China's economic strength. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and another jam-packed show for you coming up this Wednesday. The president of Lyft will be here to talk about reviving the gig economy amidst this pandemic and how perhaps ride-sharing firms might help with the vaccine rollout too. Plus, the stone-cold reality of getting fragile vaccines delivered. We've got the CEO of Cold Storage Specialist Train Technologies. I have to tell you, though, the vaccine ventures have well and truly overwhelmed any nervousness about the ongoing standoff in D.C. Investors, at least for now, remain undeterred. And the rotation that we've been seeing out of pandemic winners, the tech stocks, for example, into losers has continued, though even tech stocks could bounce today. German, Japanese and UK stock markets have gained 7% or more just in the past week. The standout exception, though, and you can see it there in front of you, China and Hong Kong pulling back for a couple of reasons, in fact. Regulators flexing their muscles over big tech. Alibaba and JD.com tumbling Almost 10% in today's session, the sector has shed over $250 billion worth of value in the past two days alone. Also, a further blow to democracy, it seems, in Hong Kong, as opposition lawmakers have all resigned, protesting the removal of four pro-democracy colleagues. We'll give you all the details on that in just a moment. There is a stark contrast, I think, between the political dominance in China versus what we're seeing right now in terms of the dysfunction in Washington, D.C. It also matches the present day COVID reality between the two nations. Also, almost 62,000 Americans currently hospitalized for COVID-19. I can tell you that's an all time record. This is where the eyes of the White House and Congress should be focused on a plan for COVID and a plan for financial aid. And we can only sit and watch and hope. Let's get to the drivers and the ongoing refusal by the president to recognize his successor, Joe Biden. The president-elect's reaction was short and to the point. Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, The only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. The president's approach was clearly on the mind of the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, when he was asked about the prospects for a smooth transition of power. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. (laughs) All right, we're we're ready. 
the, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. It's worth saying he later softened his language in an interview with Fox News. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, he does make a point there. And on the one hand, you could look at this and say, look, if there's going to be recounts, there's legalities with regards, concerns about fraud here that need to be tackled on the one hand. But then you've got the other approach that seems to be going on around the president, which is a consolidation of power in what would normally be a transition period. Joe, how long can this go on for? Anybody's guess, as you know, this has been a very erratic administration over the last four years, and it appears to be coming to an erratic end. But you make an excellent point about the dislodging of numerous government officials, especially in the Pentagon of the United States, uh, by our count, more than six individuals, including the firing of the Secretary of Defense over Twitter over the last few days. And um, we're told, at least by our Pentagon unit with CNN, that that may have something to do with the president's disagreements and the controversy surrounding his desire to completely move out of Afghanistan. But there is a larger question here about whether this purge, for lack of a better word, which is usually associated with authoritarian regimes, might actually extend to other parts of the government, uh, like, uh, for example, the head of the FBI has been mentioned, the head of the CIA has been mentioned, uh, all of this disturbing in at least one respect, and that is that at the end of a long campaign, and while the country is still distracted about the politics, in large part due to the president's own representations, we may find ourselves in a situation where the national security apparatus of the United States is being undercut, Julia. Yeah, and this is the key. I mean, you said it, authoritarian regime. I mean, I was going to use the word dictatorial because it's the kind of thing that happens when presidents Julia, in... I, uh, oh, have I lost me, you? But for some reason, I've lost you. I can't hear you. OK, then we shall thank Joe Johns. Joe, I was just warming up there, but um, you raised some great points and we will continue to raise them. Joe Johns there, and I apologise for uh, the issues there with the connection. Let's move on while there's confusion over leadership in the United States. China, it seems, tightening its grip on Hong Kong. Authorities expelled four lawmakers from the Legislative Council earlier. In response, the pro-democracy opposition resigned en masse. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, I have to say, I looked at the New York Times this morning and I think they captured it perfectly with their headline, China effectively silenced Hong Kong's legislative, legislative, you can basically translate that to Beijing effectively silencing Hong Kong's democracy at this stage. Just walk us through what we've seen in the response. It was, it's a pretty dramatic day here. Uh, basically, what happened is that the Chinese central government imposed a resolution that authorizes Beijing's handpicked leader of Hong Kong, uh, the chief executive Carrie Lam, grants her the power to strip any elected lawmaker of their seat, essentially for not being patriotic enough. Uh, Some of the reasons could be that they don't support the basic law of Hong Kong, or they don't pledge allegiance to China, or they support Hong Kong independence from mainland China, or solicit foreign intervention, or another clause just carries out, quote, other activities endangering national security. Well, as soon as she got this authority, this power, Chief Executive Carrie Lam stripped four lawmakers 
elected to the Legislative Council of their seats, and they just happen to be from the opposition pan-democracy movement. Uh, take a listen to how she justified this. To sum up, what we need to deal with at the moment is that there are four legislators who have been deemed in accordance by the law to not genuinely uh, up, swear to uphold the basic law and, and uh, not genuinely pledging their allegiance to Hong Kong SAR. According to this new uh, resolution, those lawmakers have no right to appeal. They cannot go to the courts, for example, to argue their case. In response, the rest of the opposition lawmakers in the Legislative Council, they announced that they will now be resigning en masse in solidarity with their expelled colleagues and in protest against what they say is China's move to kill Hong Kong's autonomy once and for all. Take a listen to what one of those lawmakers had to say. This act of uh, resignation is not just uh, in protest against uh, Beijing's uh, rule of rule by decree. It's no longer rule of law. It's not even rule by law. It's rule by decree. And uh, of course, we are also uh, doing this in support of our four ousted colleagues. As one of the ousted lawmakers claimed to CNN, uh, Julia, he, he called this the death of organized political opposition in this former British colony. Julia? Yeah, it, it basically gives Ca Carrie Lam the authority here to disqualify anyone that opposes is Carrie Lam. You know, I, mean, I can't say enough what would have happened had this happened 12 months ago. We saw it. We saw people in the streets. You were there. You were reporting on it. And yet this time around, because of the national security law, we can't even see people on the streets. People are afraid to go on the streets. What happens next, Ivan? Well, I think that's really important context here, because after last year's street protests that had grown increasingly violent, we have been seeing this year a pretty dramatic crackdown going on on any form of organized political dissent here in Hong Kong. Now, the Chinese government is defending this resolution that lets you strip elected lawmakers of their seats, saying that it's reasonable, constitutional and legal, according to the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry. Uh, but in the context, last summer, uh, the Hong Kong authorities postponed Hong Kong's uh, elections for the Legislative Council, which were supposed to take place in September, on the grounds of public health reasons, uh, citing the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen opposition activists and journalists being increasingly prosecuted week after week on a variety of different charges, and some of these activists are fleeing Hong Kong overseas requesting asylum. Uh, we have seen that street protests, which were kind of a proud uh, freedom here in Hong Kong uh, up until the last couple of months, they get crushed very quickly by riot police. And of course, over the summer, we had the national security law that Beijing imposed on Hong Kong, which grants uh, Chinese security forces expanded power to investigate and charge and prosecute people here in the city that is supposed to enjoy autonomy as part of its uh, handover agreement from Britain to China in 1997. 
While the supporters of this crackdown say that this is is preserving Hong Kong's one country, two systems uh, uh, agreement, uh, what I can see is that the freedoms that citizens enjoyed here six months ago, a lot of them uh, have simply de facto disappeared today. Yeah, it depends um, what your perspective is and where you sit on how you perceive a collection of different policy moves. One in isolation perhaps can be justified. Put them all together and you get something very different. Ivan, great to have your perspective. Thank you so much. Ivan Watson there. China's online retail giants should be riding high on massive single-day sales. Alibaba says it's already pulled in a record $56 billion. The problem is worries about antitrust regulations are pushing its shares and rival JD.com down some 9% in the session today. Selena Wang is following the story from Tokyo. All of these things, Selena, you can't help but connect the dots here as well. The regulators here flexing their muscles with these big tech giants who are incredibly powerful. We've seen the same in the EU, of course, and in the United States. China just moves quicker, and so do investors. Julia, that's exactly right. Connecting the dots here. I mean, China has proposed these new antitrust regulations. You combine that with the sudden delay of Ant's IPO, which we talked about yesterday, and it's really ushering this new era of more restrictions on Chinese tech companies. The government, as you mentioned, around the world, governments are as well, worried about the massive influence of these tech companies in China. Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan Dianping, they are becoming more and more important and influential and indispensable for people's daily lives, whether we're talking about finance, payments, consumption, communication, and more. And they're concerned about how they could be squeezing out competition. Now, it's unclear at this point. These are just drafts of how this is going to be implemented, but it appears from the draft that they will be looking to curtail behavior like colluding to share sensitive consumer data, subsidizing at below cost to eliminate competitors, and price discrimination among customers. And as you mentioned earlier, this is part of this global trend. They're worried about companies like Facebook and Google as well, governments around the world, and their ability to take massive troves of consumer data to increase their dominance. Julia, a trend that we are seeing only increase amid the pandemic when people are turning more and more to digital consumption. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I did promise shopping chat, Selena. So we do have to do an about turn here and talk about Alibaba Singles Day. It's clearly not one day. It's 11 days, two discount windows, I believe. And wow, what a performance. Talk to me about what we've seen very quickly because I am running out of time here. Yeah, I mean, this event dwarfs Black Friday and Cyber Monday for many years. $56 billion in the first 30 minutes of November 11th, on top of, as you mentioned, days of this pre-sale window. People in China will get ready for this event months in advance. They start to preload what they want to buy, waiting for those big discounts. You could virtually purchase anything on Singles Day. You can purchase a car, vacation trips, electronics, cosmetics, and much more. And we've talked about this revenge shopping idea yesterday, which is that people in China have been locked down. They had saved a lot of money and they haven't been able to travel overseas. So they have been able to travel domestically. So that means a lot of the luxury spending they would have bought overseas, they're now probably going to be buying on Alibaba's platforms. But the question here is we are seeing this seemingly V-shaped recovery in China's economy and their consumption. The question is, when you see these massive numbers, how sustainable are they? Is this just a one-off event where we're seeing a big spike and people stocking up? 
and still staying cautious, or is this big bounce back here to stay? Julia? Great questions. Selena Wang, thank you so much for joining us from Tokyo there. Thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed as some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. The European Union has signed a new agreement with Pfizer and BioNTech to buy as many as 300 million doses of their new vaccine. Deliveries could begin by year's end, pending approval, of course, by health regulators. This is the EU's fourth contract with companies manufacturing experimental vaccines. The U.S. has just set an alarming new record with nearly 62,000 people now hospitalized with coronavirus. More than 100,000 cases have been confirmed every day for more than a week and 45 states are showing an upward trend. Texas has become the first state to surpass one million infections. All right, more on what we could be doing to contain the virus comes up next. I'm joined by the former head of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden who leads the health initiative Resolve to Save Lives. And a boost for Lyft as voters back ride-hailing gig economy's labour model. Lyft CEO joins us on earnings and more. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where it's green on the screen for US stocks pre-market tech stocks are set to outperform, in fact, after two days of seeing profit-taking, and that pushed the index lower. The Dow also less than a quarter of a percent from new record highs after Tuesday's near 1% advance. This week's blockbuster news, as we keep discussing on vaccine trials, continues to help drive sentiment with the, the Pfizer-BioNTech version, a 90% success rate, at least so far, in preventing infections. And more great news on that front, this time from Russia, not to be outdone, it seems, announcing today that its vaccine Sputnik is 92% effective. Fascinating. Hmm. But we aren't there yet with vaccines, of course, and the number of Americans hospitalized with COVID-19 hitting an all-time high. More than 61,000 people are currently receiving hospital care. And while we see light at the end of the tunnel for the latest vaccine news as far as the COVID crisis is concerned, concerns arising over the coordination, the technology needed to distribute them. Joining us now is Dr. Tom Frieden. He's president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives and former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show once again. What do you make, firstly, of the vaccine news? And are we perhaps getting ahead of ourselves amid the complications of distributing it? Well, first off, it's very encouraging. Mm. I don't think any of us in public health expected a 90% effectiveness rate. That's far in excess of what we see for things like influenza. But it remains to be confirmed. We'd have to see... Uh, what the data shows, whether it's really 90%, whether it persists for more than a week or two, and if it works in all groups, including the elderly. And even with that, we have to make sure it's safe and accessible and trusted and rolled out effectively. So it'll really be through much of 2021 that uh, vaccines, if and when they become available, will get rolled out in this country and globally as well. Talk to me a little bit about what the effective rate we hope is for the elderly piece of the population, because I think we're looking at that in particular as a significant proportion of those that are hospitalized. If we can vaccinate the older members of society, if we can vaccinate perhaps those with pre-existing conditions, then a return to some degree of normality for, for the rest of us perhaps comes sooner than we think versus having to vaccinate the vast majority of the population. This is a critical piece, surely. 
there's an enormous gradient in risk. Mm. People who are older are at vastly higher risk than people who are younger, and people with underlying conditions are at higher risk as well. But I think it would be a misguided approach to think, well, if we can just vaccinate those folks, we'll be okay, because roughly 40 to 50% of all adults in the United States have some underlying condition that puts them at increased risk. And it's somewhat unpredictable who's going to get particularly ill. Uh, Vaccine programs take time to roll out. It's important to maintain trust in them. And they're not easy. You have to get uh, healthcare providers, you have to deal with logistics, you have to educate people, you have to track for adverse events. So a vaccine is really important and the news is very encouraging, but vaccination is not going to be a fairy tale ending to the pandemic. We're still going to be dealing with it at least through most or all of 2021 and quite possibly beyond that. Yeah, it's such important context. Um, Dr. Frieden, talk to me about what the transition team President-elect Joe Biden needs to be focusing on here because we've talked earlier on the show about a, a de facto vacuum at a terrible point in the pandemic where we've got record hospitalizations. We've got 46 American states now seeing rising COVID cases once again. It's the, the vacuum in leadership is the last thing we need. How should we be preparing and how as individuals should we be reacting? We only have one government at a time in the U.S., and it's Mm. the current administration that's responsible for uh, what happens between now and January 20th. What we're hearing from the Biden team is very encouraging. The president-elect is clear about three things that we've been lacking so far in this response. First, base it in science. Second, communicate clearly, openly, honestly. And uh, third, make sure that we have an approach that is organized so that it's clear who's in charge, um, what uh, the role of different parts of government is, and how we can minimize deaths while also minimizing harm to education and uh, our uh, societal and economic progress. It makes such an important point as well about the mask wearing, and obviously the CDC's now adjusted its guidance in terms of protecting yourself by wearing a mask versus simply protecting others around you by by wearing a mask. Dr. Frieden, can you compare that and the prospect of mask wearing in general versus, and this comes from some of the scepticism and pushback I get when I retweet articles with regards masks, is what about just boosting your immune system? What about just taking lots of vitamins and, and protecting yourself that way versus wearing a mask? Can you separate and analyze the two things for me in response? Well, first, I think it's really important to think of a multi-layered response. Mm. We have to get away from the idea that one thing is going to make a big difference. Uh, Maybe the one thing that will make a big difference is basing our response on science and public health. But really, we need a multi-layered approach. We need to wear masks. It protects others and ourselves. We need to wash our hands regularly, maintain our distance. We also need to shut risky indoor places. There are things you can do to boost your own resilience. Get regular physical activity. That's really good for you. Uh, Consume uh, healthy food, including enough vitamin D, which may actually have some immune strengthening uh, functions. Uh, uh, A vitamin D tablet, not more than 1,000 international units a day, may also help. Also improve the way we treat patients. Get patients diagnosed quickly. Don't go out if you're sick. Stay in for your own sake and the sake of others. Get tested quickly. These are all things that can bring COVID down and get our economy back. No one thing, not even a vaccine, not an election, nothing else is going to make that kind of a difference. 
Yeah, and as you say, if it's going to last until perhaps even the back end of 2021, if not beyond, it has to be part of our daily lives. There's no stop gaps and short term measures here. We just have to accept it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And really keep in mind that the end will come. We will be able to control this, but we'll get through it only if we're very careful now. Yeah. So great to have you on the show once again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. We're counting down to the market open. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday, and it's Veterans Day here in the United States, which could mean slightly quieter markets. The bond market is closed on this day. That's Edward Green. Tech is outperforming after two days of value, what we call value stock dominance amid COVID vaccine hopes. So everything that's been beaten up is uh, rising and continues to do so. The Dow has outperformed the Nasdaq the past two days by its widest margin in years. Remember Alicia Levine from BNY Mellon? She told us yesterday that that rotation doesn't mean an end to the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy stock market rally. It just means better gains may be had in some of those beaten down sectors like airlines, cruise lines and the banks. JP Morgan this week calling the investment outlook, quote, market nirvana because of vaccine optimism and the prospect of divided government in Washington. Let's just hope we don't need more stimulus. And we do. Hmm. Shares in ride hailing company Lyft, meanwhile, are higher this morning after an earnings beat versus Wall Street's estimates. The company also scored a key win earlier this week. California voters backed a proposal known as Prop 22. It's a measure which means Lyft drivers and other gig economy workers will continue to qualify as contractors rather than employees. Joining us now, John Zimmer, co-founder and president of Lyft. John, fantastic to have you on the show. Just pouring over your earnings this morning. Rides, I believe, still down over 47% year on year. But hey, that's a lot better than down 90% during the early months of the pandemic. This is a challenge. The pandemic is a challenge for ride hailing. We've got to be clear. Correct. Yeah, thanks for having me, Julia. Uh, it's in, yes, in a tough situation. Uh, it was good progress. So rideshare is recovering. Uh, we grew 47% quarter over quarter in terms of revenue. And so we're, we're seeing good signs of the recovery. Talk to me about forecasts here. I mean, we've had some real vaccine enthusiasm. It filtered certainly into your share price, too. What does that mean in terms of your thinking and forecasts going ahead? Or can you not rely on it yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, just along with, with everyone in the world, uh, nobody knows the exact timing of a vaccine. Uh, what I can tell you is that Lyft is a strong recovery stock because it's so tied to uh, economic activity and mobility. Uh, so so we're, we're optimistic with the news of the vaccine. Uh, and even you know prior to the vaccine, having that 47% revenue uh, growth quarter over quarter shows there's already signs of, of moving in the right direction. Yeah, hopefully we'll get there sooner rather than later. Let's talk about Prop 22. I, I mentioned that huge investment from some of the big gig economy tech giants lobbying for this move, for a carve out, not to have to take your drivers, your contract workers and make them employees, simply because for all you guys, you'd said, look, it doesn't work with the business model. It would simply cost too much. But you have said you'll work with labor unions potentially to provide more support. Can you be more clear? Can you give us some clarification? What does that look like? Yeah. So just zooming out a bit, uh, this is all a result of a law that was passed in California called AB5, of which 
I believe 50 industries or more were carved out. Proposition 22 didn't ask for a carve out, said specific to classification, it's best for drivers, riders, and, and the business and, and the overall economy for drivers to remain independent contractors. In fact, that's something drivers uh, favor on a six to one basis. Uh, and voters uh, agreed with Proposition 22 uh, at about 60% uh, of the yes vote. What Prop 22 does is it preserves that flexibility offered for independent contractors because people use the platform in all different ways, uh, but it also adds new benefits like healthcare, uh, disability, uh, and, and additional insurance for drivers so that they're protected but can remain independent contractors. In terms of working together with people, you know, I think the, the country as a whole is ready to come together more to, to yes, have debates uh, about disagreements, but to, to be productive about them. And so I'd rather stand in the same room talking uh, across the table than, than kind of not talking to each other. I've done that over the last two years. I've talked to labor leaders. Uh, I've asked them for feedback. I've asked how we could potentially work together uh, on parts of this. We, we haven't yet reached that uh, you know, way of working together, but I'm, I'm hopeful we can continue those conversations. You see, the sceptics look at this now and say they can't formally unionize now uh, under these laws. Their powers are significantly restricted. And I, I get your point about contract workers perhaps wanting flexibility. So some of them didn't want to be constrained by some of the rules that an employee would be. But others are saying, hey, things like medical care are costly and, and they matter. John, do you follow and do you think that Darrell Kosrashahi, the Uber CEO's idea of a pool of money, cash that can be given to some of these drivers to spend on what they like, medical cover, whatever it is. Is that a good idea? Is that something that's feasible in your mind? Yeah, so first I just want to highlight there is a health care subsidy that uh, if you drive 15 hours, you get 50% uh, coverage under the the new law that was just passed is Prop 22, and 100% if you drive 25 hours or more of engaged time. So that is contemplated, that is part of this. That is additive to what what drivers in California are getting now. Uh, in terms of a a pool, a portable benefits pool, uh, yeah, I don't think that was uh, the uh, origin of the idea was wasn't from our competitor. But the broader idea is is a good idea um, to to say, hey, there are a lot of people that are working uh, in you know ten hours with one platform, uh, twenty hours with another. Uh, so let's let's allow them to accumulate benefits and allow them to utilize those and draw down on a savings account in a way that best serves them. I get your point as well about whose idea the idea of a, um, a pot of money is, or at least providing some further subsidy to um, to some of these workers as well. But, you know, I, I look at the broader business model, the losses, and I know you're still talking about making losses in the, the fourth quarter, uh, making profits, my apologies, in the, in the fourth quarter of 2021. But the idea of restricting your margins any further when you're already loss making and providing more support to the drivers just makes the skeptics out there go, this is no business model at all. It, it doesn't work. John, push back. Tell me why this works and how sure. you get to profitability, particularly in a pandemic. Yeah, well, I mean, I love pushing back on, on skeptics. That's That's been our <laughs> path. We've been the challenger brand. You know, the Lyft business is uh, about eight years old. If you look back six, five, six years ago, uh, Uber had 30 times the amount of capital uh, and the skeptics said Lyft wouldn't survive. Since then, we've tripled our market share. Uh, we've added more great service for, for our drivers and riders. And we'll continue to do that. We, we've committed to profitability uh, in Q4 on an adjusted EBITDA basis of next year. Uh, we will hit that milestone uh, and, and, you know, let us let us prove that uh, the, the business is healthy. 
Uh, we've made it more healthy by removing $300 million of annualized costs by the end of this year. Uh, and uh, we look forward to getting a little oxygen from, from the recovery. Uh, and, and then it will shut down that, that argument. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a convert. I am a gig economy user. I'm a consumer on massive scale, I have to say. But John, you know, as a CEO of, of one of these companies, do you think you're fair to contractors? I believe so. I'm proud of what we did with Proposition 22. I'm proud of the uh, million plus jobs that we create year over year. I'm proud that we give single parents flexibility to uh, get income whenever they want and they can turn it off whenever they want. Uh, there's always more we can do. I feel a deep responsibility to the driver community. Uh, but, you know, 1% of the U.S. workforce in the last year earned money on Lyft. It's meaningful. You know, the fact that we have uh, a million plus drivers that, that use the platform every year, that's meaningful. Uh, and talk to the drivers. The drivers uh, as a whole uh, appreciate this work, appreciate the flexibility, and I'm excited to add benefits behind that uh, as, as labor laws can adjust to this new reality. Yeah, I hear you. Quick question as well. You said six to one drivers prefer this. They want the flexibility. They like what they've got. What's the source? Is that your own testing and understanding of, of, of what drivers want here? Or is that independent research? That's independent research. I believe the most the, the latest, the six to one was from the Rideshare guy. That's a website that a lot of the yeah. uh, drivers get, get their uh, information. And, and he ran a survey. Uh, it, in the past, we've run surveys uh, to get similar kind of four to one ratio. Um, but yeah, I encourage uh, you know, all users to talk to drivers and, and get their opinions. Yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, the, again, the critics would say, why did you guys have to spend $200 million to lobby for this if everyone's on board? But I, I know politics don't well, necessarily work that way. Exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yes. there's a lot of politics. I, I tried to get to a compromise position way before the proposition, uh, trying to work with the governor, trying to work with the legislator, trying to work with labor leaders. But politics are complicated, uh, mm. especially in, in a world where people are, you know, t tweeting messages of, of what they stand for. Uh, we need to get in the same room. We need to have a conversation. I think we can do, you know, better and better for, for society uh, if we work together. John, is this a model very quickly for other states? Do you intend to use this perhaps as a model? Because that's now the thought. Yeah, this is a clear turning point in this discussion. You have a very progressive state in California that supported... Uh, President-elect Joe Biden by, I think, a margin of, of 30 points. Uh, and you had, uh, you know, D Democrats, Republicans and independents coming together to support this measure. So, yes, I believe it's a turning point. Uh, yes, I believe it's a model for other states. And, and we're not closing any doors on, on who we talk to. We, we do want to talk to labor leaders. I respect them. I have been talking to them. Uh, and again, I think we can forge a path forward that is good for society uh, and good for the business. Come back and talk to us soon, please. I want to hear about progress on those discussions. John Zimmer, co-founder and president to. of Lyft. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. All yes. right. After the break, the market for the cold storage and transporter vaccines heats up. We'll look at the latest innovations by Train Technologies. These guys are the specialists. The CEO is next. Welcome back to First Move. You're looking at a so-called freezer farm run by UPS. They can be used to store vaccines like the one from Pfizer and BioNTech, which must be kept at super cold temperatures. 
Trade Technologies, whose Thermoking system is used to transport vaccines, medicines and food, is also stepping up to the challenge. It's a giant in climate control technology with 36,000 employees, over 880 facilities around the world and sales in excess of $13 billion. And I'm pleased to say Mike Lamack is the company's chairman and CEO and he joins us now. Mike, your company itself is fascinating and your footprint's huge, but I do want to hone in on your cold storage technology solutions. Just give us a perspective here on how big the challenge of distributing and transporting these vaccines is. Well, it's great to be with you, Julia. I think it's been daunting over the past year. We think about our own just health of our family, our coworkers, ourselves. And I also think about the 1.7 trillion square feet of space that, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, that people think about indoor air quality different. So as we get to the, the cold chain and moving vaccines, it's daunting, but I think in some ways we I'm very optimistic that we've got this worked through and the complex logistics are going to work well. I mean, we want I want to go through some of that, but I just want to give people a sense of, to some degree, the challenges that already exist. The World Health Organization says 20 percent of temperature sensitive stocks are damaged during transportation. 25 percent of vaccines end up degraded due to breaks in the cold chain. Mike, when we're talking about trying to keep a vaccine at what, minus 70 degrees Celsius, does that pose even greater potential degradation challenges? Yeah, Julie, when you think about the temperature on Mars is minus 60 degrees, the fact that you're actually developing technology at minus 70, even minus 80 C, close to 96 degrees below Fahrenheit, it is very, very uh, challenging to do that. And we've not moved um, vaccines, we've not moved anything to this magnitude really ever in the world. And particularly as the mRNA vaccines are established, and those are the vaccines that are needing to travel at these really sub uh, freezing temperatures, um, that's where we've been focusing a lot of our attention. I think the infrastructure is in place around the vaccines that are minus 20 to 30 degrees Celsius, and of wow. course, these refrigerated vaccines that are two to eight degrees Celsius. But the, the, the focus, the bottleneck, the innovation has really come in that ultra low uh, freezer temperature. And, and that's again, where we've been putting a lot of our focus and energy to make sure the capacities are there uh, to meet the demands. What's the degradation risk then? If you're saying that the traditional transportation is around minus 20, minus 13, if we're talking minus 70, it's clearly got to be more than potentially 25% if we get it wrong. Yeah, and, and as the MRA um, you know, vaccines are out there at minus 70, minus 80, you can see as much as minus uh, 50% reduction in, in the yields wow. of the vaccines actually making it into inoculation into somebody's arms. So you have to be very, very careful about this. So we have to map the entire process from when the manufacturer uh, packages all the way through to when it, the shot comes into your arm and the various breakpoints along the way. And so, you know, anytime it moves from, you know, air to uh, a terminal through customs, perhaps, you know, out to a truck or a trailer, those are all potential breakpoints. And so actively managing, actively looking at temperatures and humidities and whether or not the chain of custody has been broken in terms of doors being opened um, on these units is very, very critical. Um, there's also uh, the, the combination of, of that plus dry ice, and, and, and dry ice plays a factor here. And I don't think the, the world has ever seen the volume of dry ice applied to a situation like this. And so there are challenges, again, with even dry ice um, used you know, as a partial mitigation around keeping temperatures low for longer.
Yeah, I mean, dry ice produces gases as well, doesn't it? CO2, I believe, and it burns. So even just handling large quantities is a problem. But what worries me is what you said about the the 50% potential deterioration here. That takes an efficacy rate of 90% down to 45%. So we have to be really careful. Talk to me. I'm sure you're working and talking to governments all over the world. I don't know whether you'll be able to tell me if you're part of Operation Warp Speed, but you can um, you can play coy if you need to. Mike, how prepared are people? Is there anything that concerns you in how prepared and the conversations that you're having, I know, with governments? Yeah, Julia, I tell you, it's been interesting because we've, we've at Thermo King have the entire cold chain. So I've had a bird's eye view into all aspects of how these vaccines might move at different requirements. I'm also chair, chairman of the National Association of Manufacturers, and here there's 14,000 manufacturers from the very largest to small, including pharma companies and technology companies and logistics companies. And the degree to which people are working together to support this, to support COVID in general and essential work, but specifically around vaccine production and the ability to move it, um, there's a high level of, of optimism here for me. But when you think about the problem and the need might be 5 billion to 15 billion doses of a vaccine around the world over time, uh, this degradation factor is huge. And so moving from you know 50% to 30 to close to zero in terms of the loss just means you're gonna save people's lives. And so this is a very serious issue for us. And, and we think about it relative to our purpose um, more so right. than we do as an opportunity, a short-term opportunity. We don't want to be the bottleneck in getting this vaccine you know, into people and, and helping save, save lives. And so we're very focused on all of these breakpoints. We're talking to all governments. And uh, there are different points of um, readiness. There are different um, strategies around how they're going to um, address their population. And so it's a complex, not only logistical puzzle, but, but also working with, with governments directly we want to be sure that we're selling the product to the people that really do need it, that really have something ready to go, uh, because there is capacity limitations that we want to mm. be careful that we're, we're getting this uh, to the best place fastest around getting people inoculated quickly. Such a great point. Once the vaccine's ready, you've got to make the choice based on timing of vaccine prepared and readiness and safety checks with the technology to get it where it needs to go. Mike, I'm glad you're the man in charge here. Julia, even with vaccines, if you pull them out of deep freeze, you might only have six hours between the thaw process right. and the actual inoculation. And so it's a very tight window that needs to be managed at all points in the supply chain. Uh, yeah. One of them is just the storage that would be required on site. We developed a, a very specific container for this purpose that can store as many as 60,000 doses. And you think about in vials, I should say, three to six doses per vial. Um, compared to something in the market today, which might be more like a thousand um, vials in a unit that might be the size of a residential refrigerator, that would be very common which for a large a hospital, hospital. In fact, makes so sense. Getting these huge systems that are mobile is very important. Mike, come back and talk to us soon. As you, as uh, I'm running out of time, but we're being, I'm being told off. But I'm continuing to talk to you, Mike Lemack. Come back soon, sir, and thank you for you and your team's work, Chairman All the best and CEO. Julie. Thank you. Stay safe. Train Technologies. Great to chat to you. All right, TikTok's deadline to reach a sale to American owners is Thursday. But with President Trump's focus on his political survival, TikTok's fate suddenly uncertain once again. That's next.
TikTok is asking a U.S. court to suspend an ultimatum from the Trump administration. If you remember back in August, the White House set a deadline for the app to be sold to new American owners by Thursday of this week. A tentative deal is already in place. Walmart and Oracle are set to take over as part owners from TikTok's current Chinese owner, ByteDance. But nothing's finalized. The Chinese haven't signed off, if you remembered, either. But the White House is currently distracted. Clearly, no one quite knows what will happen next. Paula Monica joins me now. Wowzers, Paul, they've got bigger fish to fry, quite frankly. They asked for a 30-day extension and heard nothing back. So now what? Yeah, now I think the uh, question becomes whether or not this deal actually will go through at some point. As you pointed out, obviously, Julia, the Trump administration is uh, distracted, to put it mildly, fighting for uh, its uh, political life, if you will. And uh, that means that TikTok's sale to Oracle and Walmart maybe in limbo. Obviously, I think people are still happily using the app. It's not as if this deadline has meant that now all of a sudden people are no longer able to post videos. It hasn't been shut down, but the company is in limbo waiting to see whether or not it remains in the hands of China's ByteDance or those U.S. assets do to still need to be sold to those American partners. Oracle obviously really interested in the data. And, you know, for Walmart, it just adds to the social commerce right. the company is making as it really goes after Amazon. I have to say, and also China hasn't signed off on this yet. So quite frankly, as all parties are concerned, keep calm and carry on. I think that's the, that's the strategic plan. We will continue to follow this story. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. That's my method in life right now. Keep calm and carry on. That's it for the show, guys. This is First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.